Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Magical Musings. Uh, I'm Joy, and as always on the other end of the line is Brian. How's it going, folks? Alright, and today we are up to episode 22, and uh, because the interview that we had scheduled kind of fell through, we've got another show. So this time we're going to be talking about tools. And um, so grab your cookies and milk, grab your tea or coffee or whatever, come in and have a seat and join us for the next two hours. Woohoo! Yeah! Two hours on tools, yay. <laughs> Should be interesting. Should be. I think we've usually pulled things out of our asses and done well with them, so... Very much so, except we usually go really far afield. you got to understand, folks, uh, tools have probably been done to death by just about everybody. So most of the things that we're going to be talking to you about tonight are not really that groundbreaking or new. Um, some of it might be just things that you haven't thought of uh, in the context of the 101 stuff, um, but I'll bet you just about all of it uh, is taught in the various 201 groups or once you get into discussion groups, okay? So this is not saying that this is not going to be valuable. It's just saying that um, as earth-shattering as we like to think our show is, it's probably not going to present much new. <laughs> Crap. Well, you know... There's the surprise gone from everything. Oh, my Lord. You just... You, why are you so pessimistic? You're just always pessimistic. Damn. <laughs> okay. Um, some of the things that we want to talk about, This is I've got this whole list that I shared with Brian, and we're going to pop in whenever. Um, a lot of it comes down to just what is your tradition comfortable with in, in the means of tools. Okay. Understand that each different tradition, from Wicca to Asatru to Druidism to whatever, has a different set of tools that they say are necessary for their rituals. Okay, So, right off the bat, you've got to talk about which tools you're talking about. All right? um, then, almost guaranteed, inside of those traditions... Each tool has a different association and a different thing you're supposed to be thinking about when you're using and handling it, okay? Um, so then you've got that one, too. So this tool, let's say a knife, used by Wiccans is going to be completely different from the knife that you use, say, in your Asatru rites, which is going to be different from the knife that you're using while you're... Um, in the kitchen witch situation and chopping things, uh, scallions up and shit. Um, <laughs> so, exactly. You know, you've got you've to understand the associations are different, and just because the tool is the same doesn't mean that the ritual use is the same. Okay? So I guess the first thing we've got to define is what are we actually talking about when we talk about a tool. Um my rule of thumb definition, and this is me pulling it right out of my butt, is a tool is anything that you physically handle during a ritual. And, yeah, I, I don't think there's really much more complicated you can get with that. <laughs> um, I mean, you could get long-winded, I suppose, but, yeah, that's basically what a tool is. It's It's one of those things you use in ritual that 
puts you into the right headspace. And that's the key point. It's putting you into the right headspace. It's getting you thinking about the ritual and pushing you out of your 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 normal mundane life where you've got the concern with your work and your kids and the money concerns and is your car going to start because when you get into the ritual space you want to forget all of that none of that matters none of that is supposed to cross into the ritual space because you are there to honor your deities and to celebrate your life Okay, you're not supposed to be in the middle of ritual going, Oh my God, but do I have gasoline enough to get home from this ritual? I just don't know. You know, you don't worry about it then. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole concept of ritual itself is to, is to bring you into that headspace where you are separate from the world and not concerned with mundane affairs. So... Um, I mean, that's, I think, where the whole sort of focus on casting a, a ritual space, however your tradition may do that, is supposed to bring you to that point of separation. Um, the tools themselves uh, basically enhance the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does. And this segues into one of the biggest debates in modern paganism for people that actually care about this and that is who consecrated the first sacred incense okay because when you part one of the one of the little quirks about some of these tools is that they all have to be sanctified they all have to be blessed they all have to be special uh, so that you can use them in the ritual for their intended purpose uh, in ceremonial magic, in the Key of Solomon, uh, in the Gotia, and lots of other books similar to it, one of the things they have is you must consecrate the incense by moving the incense through the incense smoke that's on the altar, which immediately begs the question of well, where do you get the sacred incense from to burn on your altar to consecrate the incense that you're consecrating? And you get into the which came first, chicken or the egg debate <laughs> because it's true. You, you really go back far enough. Supposedly what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to get the sacred incense from your teacher. And then because it's already consecrated by them, you can then consecrate your incense. And you always keep some consecrated incense around so you can consecrate more incense. But then you That's have to go That's weird because yeah, <laughs> it always goes back to the whole first cause thing. Uh-huh. And at some point, somebody said, okay, I have this incense, and yeah, it looks really good, and I'm going to consecrate it. Um, how? <laughs> uh, it's consecrated. There you go. Slap. You know? Well, I think that's basically how it has to be, really. I mean, just for practical sake. I guess in, in a, if you're following a traditional lineage where that sort of thing is vital and important somehow, then sure, you know. Get it from your teacher, you know, pass down the tradition, but, you know, at, you know, at the same time, keep in mind that, yeah, there had to be a first. And it's probably something as arbitrary as someone going, you know what, I need this consecrated, bam, you know. Yeah, um, you know, going, oh, deity of whoever, whatever your name is, I don't care, um, please come and, and manifest into this incense and make it sacred, make it special for me so that I can better worship you, is probably what wound up happening. Kind of... Well, because, <laughs> I mean, 
Go ahead. Like, think of it in, the, in, in terms of the way the Romans used to use incense. It, it was a, a way of turning their prayers into something physical. Um, and they would basically just sort of burn crazy amounts of incense to their statues of insert current Caesar here. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was basically by the fact that it was being used that it, it became sacred. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess you just kind of have to consider that when you're using your incense for whatever particular ceremonial purpose you're putting it to. Yeah. And also, you know, it's... Would it be appropriate to get incense from another group? Let's say, for instance, your parents are very, very Catholic, and uh, you have gone with them to their Catholic mass, and the priest up there has a lot of consecrated incense, would it be okay to ask him for some of it? You know, he'll tell you no, but, you know, it, would well, that con- if they did give it away, would that consecration work for you? <laughs> see, I think that is kind of a thing, too, with the Catholic Church. Um, they have a lot of feasts and stuff where, you know, the idea is to bring the blessings of the church and the priesthood into your home by, you know, vicariously bringing in, you know, candles, incense, whatever. So I imagine it's not that unseemly for them to receive requests like that. So it depends on the time of year, of course, because, I mean, if you go at candle mass um, to a Catholic church and you say, I want these candles consecrated, then that'll just be a normal part of their process so it'll be completely normal um if you were in germany and you happen to want consecrated chalk so that you could do the uh new year's house blessing then you would have your chalk blessed and be able to do that you know little ritual of of writing cmb in the current year and all that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and we all know that you know it's very normal to get holy water out of the font and take it home with you so that you can put it in the... They used to have these uh, icons that would hang on the wall that had this little bowl attached to it and you would put the holy water that you stole from the church or uh, liberated from the church (laughs) brought home from the church and put it in that little bowl and when you did your prayers in the morning you had the holy water for that, you know. (laughs) <laughs> you dip and do the cross and everything like that. And I figured, That's you know, if the, if the Catholic Church is going to steal the uh, dunking the – I'm sorry. This is – the way they dedicate make holy water is just ridiculous. It is a cauldron filled with water, which is prayed over, incense is waved over, and then a lit candle is plunged in and out of it multiple times. Now, if this isn't a, a, a version of the Great Rite, I have no earthly idea what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, again, keep in mind the Catholic Church has existed for nearly 2,000 years. So, I mean, medieval ceremonial magic would have been drawing a lot from that because... I know. It's just the symbol. The symbolism is just so... What? <laughs> <laughs> and you, as a pagan, you see these types of things, 
and they just come out of left field and they have no meaning to the people that actually believe in them, I'm sure the priest doesn't understand why he's pl- taking a white candle, lighting it, and then plunging it in and out of a cauldron. But to the pagan who sees this and knows what the symbols mean, I can just see them dying of laughter in the middle of high mass while this is being done. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's a very strong possibility because, I mean, like, it, uh, yeah, because, I mean, if you are aware of symbolism and that sort of thing, I mean, it really does present a whole different view of Catholic mass and ritual and, and all their various beliefs and stuff. Because um, a lot of the Catholics don't even know what's going on with them. Mm. The rank and file probably don't. I'm, I'm sure that at some point some Jesuit went, why are we plunging this candle into the, the cauldron? And actually looked it up and just started chuckling in his sleeve every time. <laughs> I'm sure some of the clergy have, have looked at it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> since we've been talking about consecration, um, let's talk about the theory of consecration just a little bit. And then we'll talk about uh, the flip side of that same topic. Um the idea behind consecration is that you are bringing the power of the magic, the power of the universe, whatever, and making this a special item to use in ritual. The theory says that you are supposed to use this only for these rituals and for no other purpose. That uh, once you bring the deity's blessing into it, bring the, the stars of the universe down... Um, whatever, that it is so special and so holy that you only use it during those rituals, okay? And a lot of people ascribe to this, and it's, you know, fine for them, and this is what they go with. And if you watch most of the religions out there who have ritual tools, um, only use those tools for those rituals, and when you get a really high Episcopalian type of ceremony where there's lots of incense and lots of singing and up and down and, you know, five priests up there and 35 different tools and you have this, you know, every different holy day, you know, you're talking about lots and lots and lots of tools eventually. Now, most of the time, this is going to consist of a few basic items. There's candles for light. There is incense for wafting around smelling good to take the prayers up on the smoke to heaven there is usually um water involved someplace and there's usually some earth element like salt in there as well now i don't know all of the different versions of the various christian beliefs i don't know many of the um like hindu and things like that but from what I remember seeing, this is pretty much it. It's pretty basic, okay? You add things to it to differentiate the ceremony you're doing from all the others. Like for the, uh, for the Catholics, the Catholic priests will wear a different stole or wear a different, um, what is that? Chasuble? What's that big uh, cloth thing? Right. That's a chasuble. Okay, I was talking about the stole, the little... The, yeah, the, the little ribbon thing. The little thing. collar that's, thing, yeah. That's what I was talking about, and I was about to say... <laughs> you corrected... Yes. 
And that's how you differentiate what ceremony you're, and holy day you're actually going through. What type. It's not entirely unlike modern pagans tend to do with, like, robe colors or, you know, altar colors or whatever. Also remember that, you know, you're dealing with, at least in the Catholic Church, every single day is a holy day. Every single day is a saint's day. That's why you have Michael Mass and you have Christ, Christ Mass and you have um, St. Valentine's Mass and you have, you know, All Saints Day, where all the other saints that don't have their own day get celebrated on. <laughs> so you Yeah, know. because there's hundreds and hundreds of saints, apparently. Probably too many to put into a single year. Hi, former Catholic here. Yes, we have a, a frothing at the mouth, bleeding heart, uh, liberal pagan kitchen witch here. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, and former Catholic. And let's former Catholic. Let's not forget that part. Yes, let's not forget that one. <laughs> that's why she. That's why she makes a good researcher. Anyway, um, so yeah, the so the dedication and consecration of those are to make them tools that are worthy of being in the sacred space. I mean, let's face it, in gardenism, gardnerian, gardnerian wicca, they have an entire ritual just to consecrate the person that's going to be in the, the holy uh, space, along with the tools. It's called a, a liminal bath. Uh, and it is a it is a deal. You literally cleanse yourself of all of the negative earthly energies, so that you are worthy to be in the presence of the gods. Well, the theory is is that they want to do the same thing with the tools, so that the tools aren't disturbing the sacred balance of the circle. Okay. Huh. That explains the. Uh, um. What the hell do they call it in the Corellian tradition? It, it sounds similar to that, but it, it, it's kind of like, oh, well, I guess if you want to complicate your lives that much, sure. Well, they do it in, yeah, they do it in, in Judaism. Uh, it also shows up in uh, several, I think, Eastern religions. I'm, I, I want to say Hindu, but I'm not going to swear to it because part of the process is using a neti pot to clean out your sinuses as well as part of that ritual to cleanse yourself to go into the temple. So it's like, wow. I mean, that's where we got that from, literally. <clears throat> Probably. I mean, we get a lot of things from the Hindu practices that were handed down over time and space. So, so I mean, it's just an attempt to, I guess, not insult the gods by having anything mundane and earthly and contaminated with 
cares and concerns of the everyday, the mundane, rather than the well, sacred? And I suspect a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, in various times and spaces, um, you've had people who live their daily lives unwashed, you know, and they have these sacred days where they're supposed to meet their gods and so on. So, you know, that weekly bath or whatever um, probably is as much spiritual or is as much physical as it is spiritual. And anybody that, you know, has actually felt it and used the shower as a way to de-stress can tell you that water is extremely cleansing. I mean, heck, just having it roll over your body, even if you're not doing anything else, it just carries all the stress and all the extra energies away from you. When you're dealing with energy every day, this is something that you want. True. And I mean, the same experience can be had if you're smudging as well. I mean... True. If you, if it's less convenient for you to jump in a shower or bath or lake or river or whatever, and you happen to have a smudge bundle or something or incense, then that can serve as you know a reasonable substitute for the same process. Mm-hmm. And then there's the uh, dirt baths that some um, Native American tribes would do, uh, where they would get. They would lay down in the dust and roll around in it and throw it up all over them and everything. And then there's the good old Druid tradition of driving everything between the two big bone fires. It's true. You know, so you're cleansing with any of these. And, you know, there's a general theme here, air, earth, fire, water. Here we go. You know, water, fire, air. Anyway, uh, you get the point. <laughs> it's true. You know. <clears throat> and, I mean, that's... Like even oil, however your tradition may make use of it. I mean, the, the oil is a substitute for water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a substitute for water because water and oil have a similar liquid property, but oil doesn't quite disperse or dry out the way yeah. water does. Yeah, and it's used in uh, consecration. I know that there's several rituals uh, in the Bible that are described where the holy oil is poured upon people. uh, And there's a whole ritual in the Mormon church to consecrate some olive oil so that you can carry it around with you for blessings and stuff. So, you know, there's that too. And Um, it can't be peanut oil because that's just godless and heathenish. Well, actually, it's more along the lines of allergies to peanuts more than than (sighs) godlessness. Bah. Bah. That's I'm where sure evolution use, comes in. I'm sure they could use honey oil, but you know. Anyway, Mary found this website uh, that has hundreds and thousands of tools uh, for sale um, as for people that need them. She's She was complaining about uh, this flying wish paper that she found that uh, is fourteen ninety nine. Uh, for what looks like some tissue paper. And you think about this. You think about your wish, and you write your wish on the wish paper. You roll it up in a tube. You put it on this special wish paper mat, and you light it on fire. And as it burns, it carries your wish up into the heavens. And it's like, what? That sounds so new-agey. Holy shit. (laughs) 
It's That's like funny. It, there was a review I did a while back about a um, a, a box of good wish spells, and I swear to God, it was the 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 most wonderful thing. It was a book about eighty pages thick that told you what you needed to do with this kit and how to do it, and gave you some examples. Okay. Well, the rest of the kit consisted of a notebook that had blank paper in it and um, blank envelopes to put the blank paper into and a box to put the envelope that had the blank paper in it into the box until some other time period. This so basically was, it's just nesting boxes with paper. Pretty much. You have a book of paper, you have a notepad of paper with a pretty fl uh, motif on it, and you had the envelope with a pretty motif on it, and the box with a pretty motif on it, and you were supposed to write down your thoughts, put it in the envelope, put it in the box, and then forget about it. And it's like, and it was like fifty dollars, even yeah, though you could probably it assemble it for like five bucks at a dollar store. Yeah, and that's exactly what my review said. It was like, so you have a box of paper and a book of paper and a notebook of paper for. 80 pages of description of writing down what you want and putting it in the box. Nice. That would be... I mean, I <laughs> guess if you can sell people on that, then good for you, but seriously. Oh, what Mary's screaming about this website. What's wrong with modern witches today? And large capital letters. Dragon flooding contains no actual animal blood. <laughs> What? <laughs> I I believe the dragon was real. What? what? Just Did destroyed my that? entire life. What the hell? Oh my lord! Contains no actual dragons. Oh shit! Like I I can't imagine <laughs> anyone in the world who who thinks incenses of any kind. Or inks that are supposed to include, say, dove's blood. I mean, I, there might be a rare one that does, but the majority of those kind of ingredients are, like, colloquial names for, you know, in yeah. Dragon's case. I mean, it's it's tree sap. You know, in other types, it's like the the ashes of a plant that are mixed with, you know, water or whatever, and it's like, why would you even assume that that dragon's blood incense has anything to do with dragons? I mean, yeah, it's I'm, a great smelling incense. I fucking love this stuff, but like this was ink, Mary says. But yeah, like amber doesn't the amber scent doesn't really have amber in it, as far as I know. It does. Okay. Well, clearly, it it must have some. <laughs> Wait a minute. Any any sa like incense with amber in it is basically just amber before it's become petrified mm. okay i don't know i don't i i haven't really paid attention to it i know that there's the amber stone that you get with the insects in it and then there's the amber resin which is what you burn well so. considering the fact that amber the stone is itself just hardened sap yeah i mean I Any incense that would claim to have amber in it is is clearly not entirely lying because, hell, it could be dragon's blood amber. You could say that. <laughs> it would be true. 
<laughs> yeah, it's dragon blood amber if it's really red. <laughs> okay, um, we talked about consecration and what that the theory behind the consecration. Uh, the flip side to that is deconsecration of old um, tools. Okay, um, typically. What you will get if you talk about this in any of the pagan forums is, well, you destroy the tool. You can't ever use it again. It's been touched by the gods, and it is sacred, and you send it back to the gods in order for it to, you know, be used by them so that, you know. And my question has always been, okay, I don't have a forge. How am I going to melt down my athame? Um, True. I mean, at the same time, though, you have to take a look at history and say, a lot of cultures broke tools um, to sort of imply that this was the end for that tool. You know, it may have been a valuable and expensive item for its previous owner, but whack on a rock and it's useless now yeah. in theory. I mean, you could probably piece it together and use it other ways, but nonetheless, oh, in theory, the idea is that you've broken this thing now and it is no longer usable for the sacred purpose to which it once was put. True. But with any deconsecration of anything, I mean, if you're going to deconsecrate an altar, what do you do? Do you destroy the altar? Well, not necessarily. You destroy the stone that the, that the altar is on, and maybe you rearrange the room. Or, um, or maybe you uh, take the altar table out and you know, remove the consecration from it magically somehow. You know, I was always of the opinion that you have the tool, it was in use in a mundane form prior to you deciding to use it for your ritual tool. Why not simply go through a magical ritual to deconsecrate it, uh, undedicated from the gods, let the gods, you know, do their magical sacred thing to remove their holy influence from it, and then, you know, go back to using it uh, in your day-to-day -day life. And that's perfectly reasonable as well. I mean, if you happen to be the type who's using your, I don't know, your night table as an altar, it it's no less your night table than it was before you consecrated it for the ritual as your altar. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and I mean, realistically too, it, it's not always practical to destroy and get rid of something when you might be able to give that to someone who's new to the path and who might not be able to afford that particular tool. Mm -hmm. So. And then there's always passing it down to your descendants. Um, this it's is always true. this is always one of the really touchy things that uh, you got to deal with when you're dealing with paganism, is the raising children in the craft or as pagans that occasionally happens. Now, as pagans, we say you know let everybody choose their own path, let them you know be exposed to everything, and then they will determine how they want to live their lives. No pressure. Um, when on the other hand, you know, it's natural for any parent to go, I want my child to be raised as a good fill-in-the-blank. You know, just like if you're a, a Christian or a Mormon or a Catholic or a Hindu or, is, or uh, is, Islam, 
follower or you know any of these other religions you want your children to be part of the rituals and it gives a kind of a structure to their life with the holy days and the and the rituals and the getting together um unfortunately with all the best intentions of the world of not forcing our children into anything not teaching them about the rituals of paganism unfortunately leaves them without anything and True. a lot of times they will go to groups that do have all of the ritual and people and, and groups that are proselytizing. Like, unfortunately, my own daughter went to the Unitarians um, and is now a, a Unitarian Christian. She's a hell of a lot more tall. She was for a while. Well, Unitarian kind of implies Christianity, especially there. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's really not. I would have loved to have had her uh, decide to stay in the um, in the, the and I imagine that's going to be something that you can really sort of address quite thoroughly in a pagan parenting show as well. Yeah, it, that's something I mean, else. Yeah. There is that whole sort of question of how does one pass on their Wicca or their Druidism or their <laughs> whatever to the offspring that they have um, because there there does seem to be that lack of legacy, I guess, um, yeah. in pagan traditions because it's, it's ever new and ever evolving and it, it – gets to that point where you kind of go, okay, well, here I am now as a, you know, hedge witch who has, you know, inherited a granny trad, but, or, you know, who happens to have cobbled together a tradition and then, you know, what do I do with that? You know, how do my kids get moved down the line with that? Right, and most of these problems with the with the pagan parenting come from first-generation um, witches, Wicca, pagans, where we're looking for something outside of what we grew up with, and we find it in the many flavors of paganism, and we're home. So now we want to pass this to our children, but we also want to be fair and not proselytize and unfortunately wind up losing them. Anyway, but yeah, Brian's right. That's another show. <laughs> So there's there's passing the tools on to other people. You can pass them on to apprentices, um, baby pagans that you bring into your coven that uh, are there. Uh, you're teaching them. You're showing them what's going on. You're talking to them about some of these same things that we're talking to you guys about. And, you know, you can give them your first asami. Now, there are a lot of people out there, probably about half of the pagan community who would be uh, just aghast and want to burn me at the stake with the pitchforks and the whole thing um, for suggesting this, mainly because they have a paranoia of the, uh, the psychic attack. Okay, The theory goes that sympathetic magic is out there, Okay, and sympathetic magic is used to hurt or invade or get at somebody who's otherwise well protected. 
Now, by sympathetic magic, what I'm talking about is the theory that anything that was used by someone is still a part of that someone. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I, as a, as a witch, had an athame, and I used it for ritual, I'm infusing all of my energy into it, I'm using it in my rituals, it's becoming, my imprint, my psychic imprint is on that athame. Even if I deconsecrate it, even if I take it and shove it into a dung heap and throw curses with it and whatever, if somebody else who is psychically aware, who can read that psychic imprint, they can use it to get to me, despite everything that I do, because it is still part of me. Well, and... Okay, go ahead. Sorry, continue with your thought. It was just occurring to me that the same is done with tarot cards as well. Mm -hmm. It is, and it's done with a lot of different tools like that. Personally, while I think that there is something to that, I think that you can shield from it once you remove it from your influence okay it can be removed from you i mean i had a a bracelet a nice big heavy silver bracelet that i loved uh given to me by my wonderful wife mary the goddess of all research um and i had i wore that thing 24 hours a day seven days a week for 15 years and here just a few years back, it dropped off my wrist, and I have no earthly idea where it's at. I use this thing as my main power sink. Anytime I had extra energy, if I was nervous, if I was anxious or whatever, I would dump all that extra energy into that bracelet and ground out into it. Okay, This was a wonderful thing. It had uh, I had a pool of energy to pull on anytime that I needed it, and when it was gone, I was frantic for about a week. Well, that's interesting because it occurs to me that there's – I can't remember which one, but there was a book I read when I was a lot younger that talked about the, quote, danger of having that one dedicated tool that, you know, or that one piece of jewelry that you wear all the time that you do that to. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that there's pieces of jewelry that I have made or, you know – have otherwise acquired that I do the exact same thing with. And I don't really think of it in any sort of like super mystical terms because I happen to enjoy wearing a particular thing and it gets used quite, you know, extensively. It might be the only thing I wear for months at a time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, you go through that sense of loss if you happen to misplace it somewhere. And yeah, there is that sense of loss because it is, you know, uh, it is meshed into your aura. And it's always there and it's always focusing and helping. Once it's gone from that, you have to make a conscious decision to sever your ties to it or it can be a point of vulnerability, okay? But my personal opinion about the whole thing is that once you make the decision that, okay, it's gone, I am not getting it back. It has gone to somebody else who needs it more than I do. That you mentally cut that connection again. Okay? And then just that act, removing it from the profile of your aura, if you will, disconnects it enough 
that it can't be used against you anymore. Okay, so it's it's a, this it's six and one half dozen of the other. It's one of those debates that goes on inside of the pagan community for years and years and years with no resolution because it all comes down to what set of rules you're ascribing to. If you think that that piece of jewelry that you lost is going to lead, leave a vulnerability straight into your soul that anybody can use to ha backdoor hack your spirituality, then that's what's going to happen. If well, because you basically tied it to yourself by doing that, by exactly. thinking that exact thing. It's like, well, if you believe strongly enough that something is tied to your soul, then the fact that you believe that is going to allow whoever decides to misuse it in a curse or what have you mm -hmm. to have direct access to your soul because you basically just open the door for them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if you don't you know, go along with that, if you deny that, then that's not a vulnerability. The same goes with the consecration and deconsecration of these tools because it's said – the theory, once again, is that you use the tool specifically for the ritual aspect. You don't use it in the mundane life. You don't use it in any other aspects because you will contaminate the holiness of that tool. Okay, to which every single kitchen witch out there is going bullshit. And to which all Sayax Wiccans are going bullshit. Because we are encouraged to use our ritual tools in everyday life. The theory being, okay, the witch back in the 1000 BC era who was a pagan, who worshipped the goddess, who needed her sacred knife, didn't have enough money to go out and buy a steel knife, which would have cost the equivalent of thousands and thousands of dollars, specifically, and use it only for that ritual. They would have bought that steel knife, yeah. And they would have used to cut up their roasts. They would have cut up their vegetables. They would have cut themselves occasionally. They would have threatened their husband. They might have skinned, you know, a, a, a deer. They, you know, used it for everything. And then when they needed it in ritual, they took it, they plunged it in some water to wash all the blood off, walked out into the circle and held it up just like they did, like we do with our athames now. Okay? And that does not detract from it. In fact... Using it every day like that adds to that power. Because it's tied with everything else that you're doing in life. And makes everything that you're doing in life a sacred act at that point as well. That is true because, I mean, in some traditions they they call for the circle to be dispelled but not broken. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of, of having consecrated a tool within that circle probably thus would sort of reflect the same sort of principle. I mean, you you dispel the energy into daily life without dispersing it. Mm -hmm. You know, and with kitchen witchery, you've got a lot of tools that are used for everyday things. I mean, I can't... Mary's a kitchen witch, and she's a better kitchen witch than I am. But we're both witches. However, I can't think of really many tools that she uses in the kitchen that aren't also sacred tools. I mean, it's kind of odd when you pull out the holy can opener, but, you know, <laughs> it's there anyway. You're consecrating <laughs> that soup. It's yes, important. Something. But when she pulls out a, a, a wooden spoon, 
that, you know, is her wand. As a matter of fact, she wound up uh, writing a series of stories about a little witch who carved her wand and made it the weather spoon. And she summoned up storms with it. And named it Reese. Oh, God, you are horrible. Gentlemen, and ladies, maybe the bracelet left because it was too full and it was time to go. That's always a possibility. Yeah, and the one I came to was maybe left because somebody else needed it, like I said. And that's possible, you know, nothing when you're dealing with magic and when you're dealing with fate and uh, timelines and things like that and all the metaphysical ooey-ooey stuff, anything's possible. It's possible that it developed its own consciousness and it just didn't mate with me anymore. Uh, and it took off. You know, I was it may have decided to do the, <coughs> the same thing as the precious and wait for a century or two in some <laughs> hidey hole somewhere. For a hobbit to find it or something, yeah. Exactly. No, I was actually planning on coming. passing it down uh, our family line because uh, in some alternate universes there were descendants uh, three generations down that still had it and it was a holy artifact, you know, and it's like it's a silver bracelet. It's got a lot of energy into it. It's special to me because I wore it. But it's not a holy relic. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's it's how you true. wind up with religions. <laughs> anyway. That is also true. Okay, so we've covered three things out of our holy list here. That's okay. We've got two hours for this. Yes, we do. What? Okay, hang on a second. An esoteric idea would be to have your own special needles and threads that are dedicated and consecrated so that when you do rituals where you want to combine things to join things, you're sewing them together with sacred thread and needle. That's actually an interesting one. Thank you. It's an obscure ritual tool that I just thought of, and I'm sure it's been thought of about 100,000 times before now. Well, it's, it occurs to me that that would be something that you could use in, like, sympathetic magic when you're dealing with poppets for a love spell or something like that. Or or if you're, I don't know, if you're trying to create a tradition or a, uh, a coven of dedicated witches who each have made their own doll of themselves and then you sew them together and create that, mm-hmm. you know, unbreakable bundle of dolls that are tied together on the physical and spiritual levels and so on. Yeah, and that's uh, been... I saw it suggested in Buckland's a long time ago, um, making the poppet. I don't know about the dedicated needle and thread, but, you know, that's another kitchen witch, hearth witch type thing um, that, you know, actually is really, really good. It's something that can be done. Um, and ritual robes, like Mary just said, that's that's a possibility too. And speaking of which, we can get into the DIY crafting thing, um, where a lot of your tools could be made. Okay, uh, I'm not suggesting you get a whole forge and go out and start making your own swords, unless you're really into that, and then go for it. Um, but making a um, ritual robe making a pentacle uh, out of a circle of plaster and painting a pentagram on it, um, making um, 
plates and cups for the libations and the cakes and ale. I mean, those are fairly easy. You just go down to a crafting store where they're giving lessons in uh, pottery, and you buy a couple of the unfired items, you paint them up the way you want, let them fire them in the kiln, come back and pick them up two days later, and you've got a, a ritual tool. That's what we did for several of our things. We made a huge, I mean, probably about a foot across plate uh, for our cakes and ale. It had a cover on it that cracked. We got a, a flower vase, painted that up for the ale, for the wine, um, made a, a pentacle out of it too, you know, and just went crazy one day. <laughs> it was really fun. And actually it occurs to me that if you happen to be like a high school student with access to kilns and that sort of thing for your own personal projects, that might be something that you can even consider as well. Hmm. That is a point because, I mean, it's – if you've got something – personally, I would say make it as multi-purpose as possible. If one of the projects is to sculpt something and the teacher's not specific about what – and you feel like sculpting uh, a fawn to use as uh, your altar representation for Pan, go for it. Get a good grade on it. <laughs> it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's true. And it makes it more powerful because there's that positive association if you've gotten a good grade for it. Mm-hmm. And there's also that you know ego boost of, you know, hey, I made this really cool thing and now I get to use it every damn ritual. There was one girl that made um, cameo plates that hung over the altar when you had one of the altars that were set up against a wall. Uh, She made these – they were about a foot tall by about six – five or six inches wide, and she would paint a cameo of your deity onto that, and you hang it up over your altar, and there's your deity representations. That's actually a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you – Happen to know artsy people who have access to those things? By all means. And despite the Ardanes, because I know somebody's going to think about this, what about the Ardanes that says that you have to make all of your own tools and that you can't haggle? Well, you know what? That 161 laws, or 162 depending upon who you're looking at, um, those were come up a, a while back, I mean 60 years ago. And they don't really have that much connection to now. I mean, we're not it's living, true. We're not living in the dark times. You don't have to, uh, you know, decry the priest as he walks down the street, and you don't have to, you know, keep your um, all the crimes that somebody in a coven might commit inside the coven. You know, it's okay to be pagan it's okay to be a witch you can shop around for your tools yes especially since there are always designs that might be more attractive than the one that you could make yourself Mm -hmm. and might better reflect your particular taste in ritual tools Mm -hmm. yeah and there's nothing wrong with that i mean we've said it many many times in the show um if you're out at a dollar store, there's tchotchkes all over the place, and you'd be surprised how many of them can be turned into altar tools. I mean, little hurricane lamps that stand maybe five inches tall, hold a half an ounce of oil in it, will burn through the average ritual. 
and they'll give enough light illumination that they will be great. And you can get colored oils too, green for the lady, brown for the for the Lord. You know, um, heck, just looking around in nature can can find stuff. You know, uh, a shed antler can be a heck of a wand if you want to use it for that. Or a representation of the god or... You know, anything like that. If you uh, happen to be at a Renfest, one of the very first uh, altar tools that we got uh, for our coven here was uh, the goddess crown. We were at a Renaissance festival. We had been married maybe six months, I think. And she was extremely pregnant with our daughter. Um, And we were at the Renaissance festival, and there they were selling these decorative flower paper paper flower crowns made on florist wire and ribbons and we bought one and we all we both looked at each other a little while later and went you know that's a great crown for for the lady and that became one of our altar tools (coughs) that's that's a good way to put it to use yeah you know instead of just letting it hang on a wall and gather dust which is what actually happened to it (laughs) No, no, a cat uh, wound up urinating all over it, and we had to get rid of it. But no, that's no good. No, that's no good. Um, you know, and so you don't have to go really expensive. I mean, one of the things that we um, that I put on this list is remember back in the '80s, uh, the really dark gothic Spanish. Um, decoration scheme that was wood and leather and it had the stupid cast iron maces and the shields and the bowls and everything like that. Remember that decorating scheme? Oh yeah. Okay. Absolutely do. Oh yeah. Um, One of the things that they would include with that is a coat of arms that was black metal and two swords that were kind of behind it. Well the swords were chunky. They were thin pot metal you couldn't use an offense with. They had a handle that was maybe three inches long. Um, the, the pommel was just a spike. The, the guards, the quillins, was just a twist of metal. Um, it was maybe three feet long and had a very square point on it. And it was all black metal. And that was, you know, the sword for the champion that was there. There's huh. absolutely nothing wrong with finding one of those and using that as the as the coven sword. Well, exactly. I mean, actually, I personally went and found um, a sword on Amazon, a Celtic sword, for 25 bucks, And I was like, you know what? This isn't fancy. It's not elaborate. And it's not handmade by any stretch that I can see, but it would suffice if I, you know, started a grove sometime because mm-hmm. it's it's a sword that has blunted edges but has a stabby point. Mm-hmm. And after all, when you're, when you're using – this is where we're going to get a little bit of feel, but it's still dealing with the, the tools. Um the tools themselves represent the elements. Okay, I don't know if y'all actually noticed this or not, but when you have uh, the candles, they're burning. They are naturally associated with uh, fire. You got the water, incense, obviously. You know, water, obviously. Salt for the earth. Uh, the pentacle to tie it all together. 
You have um, the athame for moving the energy around, the wand for directing the energy, uh, and a few other things like that. Okay, that's basic 101 Wicca. Um, the thing is, is that a lot of these tools can be substituted for each other without messing much of anything up. It's true. Um, for instance, if uh, you don't want five tools on your altar, let's see, the sword, the asame, the white-handled knife, the boline, and the poignard, uh, all on your altar cluttering up things, you only need one of those because they all do basically the same thing. They take energy from here and push energy over to there. Okay? Um, and they direct the energy. That's what they're there for. So I've completely lost my train of thought here. I mean, I know um, what I'm saying here. <laughs> oh, God. That's normal for us. Yes, it is. Um, but, yeah, if you've got... Uh, you know, a, a chunky, no good, beat up uh, piece of crud machete, and you want to use that as your uh, coven sword, go for it. I mean, it's an edged weapon that is used in a group setting to direct energy from this point to that point. It does the exact same thing that a wand does, that the white handled knife does, that the bowling does, and that the asame does. Okay. Well, and in traditions where um, you might practice animal sacrifice, um, some groups within the heathen Ausatru community do, mm-hmm. um, you're not necessarily going to have a consecrated knife that is only meant for sacrifice. You, you may very well, but basically, I mean, if that's the knife that you use for slaughter, then, you know, someone who's practicing Wicca might not likely use that in their circle. Yeah, because, um, I mean, there are death energies that are released. That's part of the reason that sacrifices, uh, blood sacrifice and death sacrifice are so powerful is because all of these pent-up energies are all released all at once. And if you're quick, you can gather it all up and channel that into your spell or whatever. And if you're Lagatha, you can spread it all over yourself and wander a field sprinkling blood. Or whatever. Or you can dance on on uh, Shiva if you happen to be Kali once you drank it all. <laughs> it's true. Um, but yeah, those those types of energies do leave a residue. Um, it's one reason why slaughterhouses uh, are so filthy feeling if you it's go true. there. Because there's the fear of the animals, there's the knowledge of the animals that something bad is going to happen, uh, and then all the death energies that are raised by the killing. Even if it's a humane, quick killing, there's still all of those death energies. So any utensil that you use for that is going to be contaminated by them. So you're probably not going to be able to take that knife that just slid open this uh, sow's throat and use it really effectively in a white light healing type of situation. Unless you've been doing that for some time, that's how your magic works, and you know what you're doing with those energies, as in a kitchen witch or farm type situation. Well, and that brings to mind the whole concept in um, traditions like uh, voodoo and stuff, or hoodoo, I guess it would be, um, where they do use those life-for-life kind of transfers 
in mm-hmm. their healing processes um, where, you know, they'll, they'll kill an animal or tear it apart or whatever it is they do to them and use the, the blood that's, you know, flowing from this dying animal to, mm-hmm. you know, bestow life back upon someone who happens to be in need of healing. Yeah, and all of that is, is absolutely fantastic, but with the caveat that you know what you're doing. Okay, you can't. I mean, I'm sorry, un- unless you've made a special study of this, or you've worked with those energies quite a lot. Don't until you either get education or you have some experience doing it. Okay, it's kind of like saying don't go swimming until you know how to swim. Well, <laughs> it's kind of impossible to learn how to swim unless you go swimming. Yeah. <laughs> So there's going to be situations where you have the opportunity to learn how to do some of this stuff. Take those opportunities, use that experience, and bring that experience over into your magic if that's what you want to do. Otherwise, try not to. It does clutter things up a lot. Well, exactly. And I mean, there's actually a book that I heard about several years ago that I ended up buying because I was curious about it and because I particularly liked the flair with which its author tends to do everything. Um, There's a book called The Witch's Book of the Dead or something like that by Christian Day, Mm -hmm. which talks about all of that death energy and the tools and necromancy and all that kind of thing. So if that's something that you want to look into... There are books out there that will discuss those things, mm-hmm. and they and do one, have all the caveats. Yes, and one really, really good, outstanding, excellent source that I can recommend is Lupa. She is somebody that we've talked to a number of times, uh, somebody we've mentioned on the show a number of times. She is a uh, pagan up in the Portland area. She is a wonderful resource for this because she uses uh, – she, recyc- she upcycles dead animal parts. That's what she does with them. Um, for instance, she'll go out wandering in the woods and she'll find a skeleton. And she'll collect up the bones and make some artwork out of that skeleton. Uh, she'll go to um, a thrift store and find one of those old rabbit fur coats that they had in the 80s that is falling apart and hasn't been well cared for. And she'll very carefully take it apart so that it's the individual skins. And she will release the spirits that are still attached to those skins and talk to those, you know, and try to figure out what they want to be used for and then reuse them in other ways to make altar tools. And Mary's, Mary's, ritual costumes and things like that, which are oh, really cool. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, Mary's got an athame from her, not the one that she uses in the kitchen, but the one she uses for other rituals. That is a thigh bone of a deer that nice. she made and sharpened up. Uh, we've got our libation bowl is an inverted um, uh, deer antler with a bowl glued on top of it and decorated up. Most of my little pouches are from her. <laughs> so it's just she does a heck of a job, and she really knows her stuff in that. So, and if you happen to be on Tumblr, she's thegreenwolf.tumblr.com all mm-hmm. together, no hyphens or anything and she's coming out with a tarot of bones yes actually i saw one preview on her blog that was really interesting Mm. Uh, i've offered to give her a professional review on it uh once it comes out 
and uh, use it for a little while and see how it works together and everything like that. Uh, do the, the whole recommendation and stuff. And I think we're going to really try to have her on the show when that hits the stands. It should hit somewhere mid-2016. That's what she says, at least. Makes sense. And from what I've seen, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's unique. I know of nothing else that does this. Um, I think it's going to be one of those tarot decks for the real consummate professional because there's no symbolism on it other than the symbolism of the bone and how many there are. It's true. There's going to be a very different energy in that deck than would be in, you know, your average rider weight or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now, since we're about halfway through the show, let's do our begging portion. Brian, you get to do it this time. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, folks, you guys are uh, probably longtime listeners or maybe even new. And you have heard many times, as we've said, that neither Joy nor I takes a salary from doing this. Hello? Oh, never mind. Someone hung up or went offline. Anyway, and yeah, I mean, you know that we don't make any money doing this. Um, Joy spends a lot of time editing each episode and, you know, we record these things and we put them on the website so that we can bring those to you um, because, you know, we enjoy doing this. We have for a couple of years now in various types of shows. We love you! (laughs) It's true. We do love our listeners. Um, And one of the things that we do kind of want that we aren't getting... um, We have quite a generous uh, supporter, I guess, who is providing a monthly donation that covers website expenses and so on. But what we do need more of is feedback from you folks, um, you know, because every show has room for improvement. So we want to hear what you enjoy about our shows. We want to hear what you hate about our shows. Um, you know, we want to hear your ideas for topics that we haven't talked about um, so that we can do more shows. Um so if you want to get a hold of either Joy or myself, you can do that at Joy or Brian at MagicalMusings.net. No K in magic. Um, hit us up on our Tumblr webs or on our Tumblr blogs. Uh, Joy's is wide-worlds-joy.tumblr.com. Mine is cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com. And, yeah, I mean, please hit us up with information. I mean, if you want to make donations those help us in all kinds of ways um no matter how small they are um because we may have the bandwidth and the storage space for the website uh paid for but there's still those pesky domain renewal fees and (laughs) things like that (laughs) and i would like honestly i would like to be able to take a little salary for this because it does take more and more of my time um, you know, I, it's time that I love spending, but you know, anyway. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, realistically, it 
it's something that we kind of talked about in the early days um, that we hoped would make a you know a bit of money for us um, to supplement our current jobs, but you know that's something that will happen in time if it's meant to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so let's continue on with the show. Excellent. Okay, so um, out of the supplementary stuff that we were thinking about um, is alternates to various tools. Now, like I said, most of the paganish or the uh, various Wiccan-flavored uh, traditions out there have the same basic tool sets um, based around the elements of air, earth, fire, and water, but there's enough variance in there that things can be intelligently substituted for others. For instance, uh, in Sayak's Wicca, they have a spear that the Thane uses, and that's one of the, the coven officers, uh, about the same level as the secretary and the priest and priestess. Uh, in some traditions, he would be called the summoner, in others, the sergeant-at-arms, in others, the guardian. Basically, he stands as part of the circle, but outside of it. And does a lot of the, okay, you're coming into the temple now, okay, you're coming out of the temple, I'm bringing you here and I'm doing this. He carries a spear, which is supposed to be used to draw the diameter, the the actual perimeter of the circle before the temple is cast and the ceremony starts. Okay. Um, However, if you don't have that, you can use a staff. Druids use staffs all the time to draw sacred circles around themselves. Uh, It was uh, part of the protocol that if the Druids were going from one tribe to another to negotiate anything, (coughs) that they would go into the other group's territory, they would draw a circle around themselves with their staff, and they would stand there and wait to be contacted by the opposing group. And that circle would mean that they were in a neutral space and were inviolate at that point. They were not being part of one tribe or another tribe. They were, being, they were speaking ex officio from their navel as the representative of all tribes. And that's how they would do negotiations back and forth when there's you know, a, a war going on between the uh, Iceni and the Cantabaludis or whatever they were called. <laughs> it's true. So... Um. Yeah. So there are intelligent ways to substitute stuff. Um, mostly, form follows function. Okay, If you have a knife, think of all the things that knives are used for. If those types of things come up in your ritual, that's what you can use that knife for. Okay? Uh, for yeah. instance, for instance, a lot of people go, oh, well, I need a wand for this, and I need this, and I have to do this with the wand. Well, I don't have a wand. Well, can you use a knife? Absolutely. Because a knife does the exact same thing a wand does. It can dig in the soil, it can direct energy, but it also cuts energy. More than that, you can use your finger. Because your finger directs energy. You point at somebody, you do a gu- uh, the gun-pow thing, and that's energy going out. Um, you can draw things with your finger. If you have a, a sparkler that's lit, 
and it's burning and throwing off all those sparks and everything, you can use that for a wand if you want. That's okay. true. I've and if you one. happen to have one of those little Halloween star wands with the ribbons and stuff, you can use that. Oh, heck, I knew one little girl who um, uh, was convinced that there was something in her room. And, you know, all the grown-ups were like, yes, 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 patting her very gently on the head and, you know, not believing her. And somebody gave her one of those wands with the liquid in it and the glitter in it. And grandmother was shocked as shit one night when she walked into her room and saw this little girl using that plastic wand with the fluid and the glitter and the big star and the ribbons and everything to banish some of the things that were in her room. Nice. <laughs> and he was just <clears throat> like, what? Okay, well, this kid needs some um, training fast. <laughs> well, and I think that's the thing, right? Like, the the mind is sort of the source of, of direction for any of those energies that you might be calling up. So if you're going to use tools of any kind, I mean – it's more important to train your mind to direct the energies to the purposes you want to apply them to mm-hmm. than it is to have the right tool um, so that you can accomplish the same goal. Um, like if you happen to be out and about somewhere and you have need of a wand, I mean, you can pick up a root or, you know, a dandelion stalk or, um, a popsicle stick if you happen to have just finished off a, you know, a bomb or something, um, then, you know, you have that as an option for whatever you happen to be doing. Mm -hmm. It's like during one ceremony, I, the, one of my Druid, uh, Druidic ceremonies that, uh, I had been studying for some time, I spent eight hours one day or yeah, over one day, Carving a whole bunch of agam staves. They're just short little sticks, maybe about three inches long, not even a pencil width in diameter, and still had the bark on them, and I would carve the, the agam runes into it. Made this beautiful set of 20 of them. Had, you know, the whole thing, studied them and everything like that, ready for the ritual. I put them in a bag. Day of the ritual comes, I go out there, and I don't have them with me. And I'm like, you are flipping kidding me. So what did I do? I sat down. I picked up a couple branches right off the, off the ground, made myself another set, <laughs> and used those instead. You know, wasn't nearly as fancy as the original, but nonetheless. Yeah, nonetheless. But you know, that brings another good question up: How elaborate is necessary? And the answer to that is: Is how elaborate do you want it to be? Mm-hmm. You know. We're talking about using kitchen objects for um, major uh, ceremonial tools. We're talking about using wild-crafted items that you find in nature uh, for representations of the gods. We're talking about, you know, uh, finding a whisker of or uh, even or some fur from a fox and using that to represent the animals of the earth. Or, you know, the, the shed antler of a, of a deer. You know, so these things don't have to be elaborate unless you want them to be. Well, and that brings to mind something that I think a lot of noobs are faced with, and probably veteran pagans as well, because I think as, as you get more into your practice, there, there 
sort of is this unspoken pressure to be more fancy with your your ritual robe um depending on your tradition you might just be in street clothes um other traditions require a very straightforward simple robe some go for a hood some go for a hooded cloak you know some you know more flamboyant um groups tend to like the halloween costumes that are like wizards and you know medieval sort of costumes and and that sort of thing so and then there's gardenarians who uh actually don't use any kind of clothes at all <laughs> it's true there is that option and and the alexandrians are are kind of the same way um but again it's a, it's a, a matter of individual coven choice right like mm-hmm. it's it's or it's, tradition choice because i know the skyclad is uh mandated by the um teachings of Gardner. Apparently magic can't go through one layer of cloth. Um, Obviously. I, <laughs> I mean, how is it going to leave the house if you don't have like some window open a tiny crack even in the depth of winter? Right. Honestly. <laughs> but yeah, um, the the really elaborate robes and stuff, I mean, to be honest, I have one ritual robe. Uh, it is the robes that I was presented with when I took my oaths uh, as a druid. And since the order that I took them with dissolved, they really are just not anything. They're a covering. Most of the time, most of my witchcraft is done in whatever I happen to be wearing or not. Uh, all of Mary's witchcraft is and worship is done uh, in the kitchen, so it's, you know, street clothes or business clothes or what? Okay, she worships wherever she is, whenever she fucking feels like it. Okay, fine. But, you know, bathtub, uh, boardroom, doesn't matter, you know. Same with me. I, I, it's whatever I happen to be in. Mm-hmm. You know, so... And as a solitary, I don't feel an absolute need to go to the lengths of having ritual wear. Um, so I tend to go in what I happen to be wearing generally. Um, though I do kind of like the notion of having ritual wear, I just don't have anywhere to wear it, so I don't bother. Mm-hmm. And it isn't, you know, I'm not going to say that the aesthetic uh, for having uh, a nice altar, very decorated up, um, with, you know, every... Uh, bobble that you can put on there uh, and the full out you know heavy velvet uh, ritual robes with the sacred belt that you made you know out of nine different strands of whatever and knotted 500 times you know I'm not saying that none of that is necessary what what Brian and I are trying to get through is that it's only necessary if you want it to be it's only necessary if you would like it to be it's only necessary if it's part of what will make you more fully come into the circle and connect with the deities. Mm-hmm. And so. I mean, it's, again, it's a psychological thing. I mean, the act of stripping off the mundane in order to don the sacred, um, is a big thing for some people. I mean, and it some takes, people can't yeah, function without it. 
Yeah, it t- literally, because you're changing your skin, you're changing your mindset. I mean, the whole point of ritual from beginning to end, when we take everything out of it except what absolutely has to be there, is the mind shift from the world with the physical things and the lighters and the cable TV and the you know the the chiming clocks and everything like that to shift your brain from that world to the world of the sacred where the deities live that is the entire purpose of ritual that is what everything else is designed to do is to take you to give you that that consciousness shift from one state to the other if you can do it without any of the tools and without any of the ritual and without any of the imaginations brilliant fantastic You're way ahead of the game from where most people are. However, (laughs) most of us can't do that. Because if you try to get out of that that shift, you'll accidentally look down and see, I don't know, the the hole in your shoe. And that'll bring you back into the mundane world again. Where you don't have the money to replace the shoes. Yeah. And by taking that shoe off and leaving it outside the circle, now you're no longer distracted by that shoe you can keep your consciousness in the, the, the sacred areas that it's supposed to be in. Exactly. And, I mean, I think that's a lot of the reason why people tend to practice their rituals in, in natural spaces as well rather than in their own homes is because the home is where, you know, life happens and, you know, that's where your bills are due and, you know, you're, you know, buying food or or dealing with a a bitchy neighbor or, you know, some problem at work. And nature is this entire sort of ritual robe for your mind where you're completely cut off from all the concerns that are affecting you on the paved, you know, on the pavement under your feet in the city or whatever. I have nature on my hands. Give me a wipe. I have nature on my hands. (laughs) Sorry, that's a line from Monk. Uh, he's uh, um, uh, OCD um, detective, and at one point he he can't stand to be outside of his house in the urban jungle. And at one point he wound up in the woods, and <laughs> some water fell on his hand, and he's like, "Oh, I've got nature on my hand. I have nature. Give me a wipe. I need to get this nature off." <laughs> So much so that at one point he was sweeping up uh, some dirt that was outside on a patio and swept it all up into the dustpan and went to throw it away into the trash can. Somebody else said, just throw it anywhere. It's the same dirt that's going to blow back up here. And he's like, yeah. And he stood there for like three minutes in indecision, going back and forth between the trash can and the rail, trying to force himself to throw all this dirt that came from two feet away back out there. <laughs> and finally the guy's just like, throw it away. <laughs> and he's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> it's it true. There are some people who are that committed to life in a civilized environment <laughs> that they can't adapt to the touching nature thing. <laughs> okay, so here's something else. Um, there's replacement of your sacred tools. Okay. No joke, things happen... Uh, tools are going to wear out. Um, the candle holder that you've got, 
Uh, maybe you let the candle burn down too far into the socket one too many times, and the heat has shattered it. Well, now you're going to have to replace it. What do you do? Same basic thing you did to get it in the first place. I mean, it's the same. You go out, you find the tool, you bring it back, you consecrate it, you put it on your altar, you use it. But the one of the other things is, what if you have a perfectly good athame, and you see another one that just screams, you're my athame. And you pick it up and you buy it. Except now you have two athames. Well, what do you do? You keep, you keep them both. You give one away. You share one with your child. You use one for the elaborate altar uh, athame, and the other one is for your day-to-day -day emergency crash kit altar. <laughs> you know, it's there's true. A, there's a lot of things that you can do with those types of tools. You know, and you don't have to make it a huge thing. You don't have to deconsecrate one to reconsecrate to, to consecrate another one. Um, you can have multiples of these island items. I've currently got three athames. Um, one was an old Bowie knife that I had when I was a, a scout um, <clears throat> that I repurposed into a single-edged athame. I found a dagger later that was perfect, except the handle wasn't right. So I took the handle off of my old Bowie knife, put it on that dagger, and that's my new asame. But the other one's still consecrated for it. I can still use it that way. And then I've got my butterfly knife that I keep in my pack in case I have to, to do a ritual away from all of everything. You know. Or if you get into a gang fight. <laughs> well, there's that too. <laughs> when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear mm, okay we're getting into show tunes this is going bad <laughs> alright then there's uh, disposable to uh, tools okay now by disposable tools we mean tools that are designed by their very nature to be used once and gotten rid of okay in this group you have things like incense candles salt uh, water uh, for the for the the water portion of it, uh, the libations that you're giving to the Lord and Lady, um, the fires that you're lighting. Okay, do you have to consecrate all of these? Jury's still out on them. Um, some people will say yes, absolutely, they're sacred items. You have to consecrate them. Others are going to go, well, you're just going to consecrate it and have to consecrate another one next week and another one next week and another one next week. Uh, why go to all that work? Well, and I think, too, it, it comes down to whether you personally believe that the various elements and the tools that represent them are, in fact, simply parts of nature in and of themselves. So do they require consecration, or are they sacred because they are natural anyway? And like we said, you know, it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. It depends entirely upon what you believe. Uh, there are, I mean, if you just want to take one, one part of that and say, let's talk about candles. Do you have to consecrate candles? Well, personally, I don't. Okay. But you know, it depends on everyone else. Yeah, and I don't either. But if it's, but if I'm using it for a specific spell, I will. But you know, it also depends. Uh, normal paraffin candles uh, that you can go out and buy at the dollar store, three for a buck. Those are made, those are actually, uh, the, the paraffin in them is a 
leftover from uh, refining oil into gasoline. It's true. Okay. So you've got a man-made chemical here that they found a use for. They take it and they bundled it up and they made it into candles to burn, okay, w with lead wicks, which is kind of – so that's not really part of nature. It's not part of the natural order of things, so do you have to consecrate it? I don't know. Um, beeswax is actually a natural thing that you can harvest – from your bee combs, um, but once again, here you got you know the bees work hard to make all that beeswax so that they can store their honey in it. And here you come along and you're ripping it out of there, and now they have to make it all over again. You know, so is that fair to the bees? Do you have to consecrate that to get the 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 bee anger and the bee tears out of it? <laughs> if you're a vegan witch, I think you probably would have cried before you even considered using a beeswax candle. Probably. Um, but I don't know. I think personally that the bees having made it makes it sacred and it's just a part of daily bee life, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not – I don't see them as being angry for you taking their stuff as much as, you know, it's oh, stuff that they, you know – regurgitate anyway so it's just normal wear and tear dude <laughs> basically i mean they're you know wild bees deal with like bears ripping apart their hives so you know human beings taking a little roll of beeswax and making a candle i can't imagine it being that much of a stressor for them mm -hmm. maybe we are over anthropomorphizing bees i don't know but you know also uh there's a huge debate about salt Okay, what type of salt do you use for your ritual? I mean, what does it matter in my opinion? <laughs> salt is salt is salt. If you happen to have just that like road salt or rock salt or something, I mean, that'll suffice just as well as any iodized salt or Celtic sea salt or anything else that you could dredge up out of the, you know, Him Himalayan yellow salt brought down by the the virginal sherpas you know <laughs> it's true like i i think salt is salt you know if if the table salt in your cupboard is what you have handy then go with it that's what you if, use. One, i mean if you've got like go ahead sorry if you've got a fetish for like exotic salts that are handled by you know the vestal virgins you know of a Tibetan monastery or whatever, then go with that if you feel like it. But that comes down to the question of is elaborate necessary? Yeah. Uh, one priestess that uh, I studied with for a little while uh, out in Dallas uh, pointed out that all salt, period, comes from the sea. So it's all sea salt. Even the inland salt deposits that you find are from oceans from you know a long time ago so even if it's salt that's inland no longer from the sea boiled the water away it's still sea salt so if all salt is salt then it doesn't matter it's true you know uh incense same basic thing you're using it you're des you're designing it to use up you may you know before you light it um, hold it up and ask the Lord and Lady to bless it, you know, and then light it up and then let it go. You know, it's up to you. 
it's another representation of fire it's you know the purpose of it is to take your prayers to heaven that is what most incenses are used for now the catholic church has an interesting spin on the incense thing uh... and that's their church blend anybody that's been to a ritualistic church where they do incense and uh... have a lot of the incense going around and they always have it during their church services knows the church blend smell with the frankincense and myrrh and the sandalwood and a few others but when you light it it automatically causes a consciousness shift in somebody that's been around it for a long time because what happens is that same smell is associated with this particular mindset and since we all know that smells are one of the strongest triggers in memory it's the same exact thing with a meditative state true and it, it's actually a good instance to start with when you're recovering catholic or um like episcopalian or whatever um because it does have that same psychological effect on you mm-hmm. um and then it it you know as you get more and more into things you can experiment with other incenses or whatever um like i know people who really love the smell of jasmine incense and personally i think it smells like marijuana which you know is fine if you're smoking marijuana one of the other things that uh is a really good idea uh when you're talking about tools and altars is to start with a concept and develop what your tools look like from there I mean, it's okay to get a plastic knife um, off of the dinner service, uh, a little styrofoam cup of water, a packet of iodized salt, and a twig um, initially if that's what you've got available for your altar. But eventually you're going to want to get a little bit more elaborate, and that's fine. Um, One of the things that I came up with is uh, my leather and lace altar. I mean, I've gotten into leather work and working with leather and making leather goods. Um, and I had this idea at one point that a half-and-half half altar, one half is leather and one half is feminine things, lace. Um, so say on the left half of the altar, you have a leather drape, you have antlers, you have fur, you have... Um, a cup made out of horn. You have, uh, you know, a, a knife made out of obsidian, maybe. Um, you have, you know, things like that that are very masculine and very <laughs> into the woods type thing. Um, paracord and you know, mil- <laughs> brass. <laughs> Actually, like I did think at one time of using like camouflage fabric as my altar cloth <laughs> oh that's great and on the other half the the right side have something that's light and cheerful plants flowers um you know uh the the flower yeah. crown that i was talking about earlier um have you know a dainty little bone teacup you know stuff like that for feminine and then you have very strong presences of male and female on that altar. It's true. Yeah. 
and if you're a little more kinky, I mean, there's all sorts of options you could explore with that. Oh, yeah, but we're not going to go into that. This is this is this is magical musings, not BDSM musings. <laughs> Although with Gardner, there really wasn't a difference. <laughs> yeah, there really was. Okay. Um. <laughs> One of the last things that I've got onto this list uh, to talk about is deity representations. And I know that this was one of the things that just stymied me forever while I was uh, a baby pagan. Uh, is all the books, all the one-on-one books, uh, all the books that I could find for anything else said you had to have a representation of your deities on your altar or you just weren't a witch. <laughs> and I stressed over these representations <coughs> so much that I swear I gave myself an ulcer at one point. Uh, especially when I was associated with uh, a, a, Wick, a pagan store in uh, Grand Prairie, Texas. And, um, you know, there's all these beautiful statues of all of these... Greek gods and goddesses and, you know, some Chinese ones and some Hindu ones. And, you know, I'm looking at the statue and it's a beautiful statue. It's wonderful. It's gorgeous. And I pick it up and I look at the base and it's $150. And I went, oh, it's true. And I, you know, and I was despairing ever having representations of my gods on my altar. And what would I do because I wouldn't be a real fill in the blank? <laughs> Finally, about five years ago, I came to the point of fuck all. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> as long as you it's have. It's true, though. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, as long as you have something on your altar that reminds you of your deities, that's all you need. You don't even have to have anything on your, de- on your altar representing your deities, as long as you keep them in mind. I mean. True. What what it finally came down to is I had some very small um, wallet-sized photos, uh, picture frames, that are designed to go on a desk for an executive to look at their family and know what they're sacrificing all of their time for and whom they never see. <laughs> the, the leg irons that, that are causing them to work 90 hours a week. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's causing it so bad. Anyway. Anyway. Um, and, yeah, I found a couple of pictures in various books that I liked that I thought reminded me of my deities. I copied them down and reduced size and reduced size and reduced size and reduced size down to where it was a size that I felt, com- felt comfortable with and that would fit into that picture frame. And I put them in there. And those were my deity representations. You know, I thought I had to have the statuary. You know, who's going to have a statue of Rhiannon of the birds? Nobody. Nobody makes that. I've looked for years. Nobody has a statue of Rhiannon of the birds. You know why? <coughs> she's not a she's goddess. She's not a major deity. Yeah, no. She's a major Welsh deity. She's not a major deity that people can make money on. So, Well, you know, and I think part of the problem with the whole, like, deity statue market is that there really is only so many ways that people are going to depict those or there's only so many varieties that a, um, a metaphysical store is going to stock or be able to order because 
the picture you might have in your head of insert deity name here may not have been represented by anyone else. Like mm -hmm. you may not be able to find a statue that perfectly matches your image of, you know, Karnanis or, you know, Shiva or whoever you happen to be, you know, dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I mean, part of, I, I think one of the things too that comes up is, is that some people want to cross, cross religious sort of boundaries with their, uh, practices and so on. So you might get Wiccans who are practicing witch, or, uh, yoga, sorry. And it's only been within the past like decade that I've ever actually seen a tantric statue of the horned god with, with the goddess um, that are engaged in what's called the yabyum position um, from tantra, which is the the god sitting cross-legged and the the goddess, you know, mounted on him, um, which I. I think it's a great statue, but uh, it's one of those things that nobody carries. So I don't know where you would get that because I can't even ima imagine who made it originally. <clears throat> well, so it just – Go ahead. Sorry. It, it just may be that your particular – the statue you like best that that you know you are willing to settle for might just not be easy to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the uh, they, uh, pagans these days, I have to say, have it a lot easier than I did in my day. You don't know how good you've got it, because I had to hike to school uphill both ways in the snow. <laughs> no, Barefoot, with broken <laughs> glass all over the ground. That's right, and my feet were bleeding, and my, my I'd come home at night, and my dad would kill us and thrash us to death, and dance on our graves singing glory hallelujah. <laughs> it's true. Um, no, there, there, there is a lot to be said for, uh, advancing in all of it, because when I started, uh, in paganism back in 91, the internet was just barely alive. There were a whole bunch of BBSs, uh, you had America Online, you had, uh, Prodigy, you had, um, a couple of others like that, that you could hook up with other people who were also pagans and there was genie uh by um uh ibm and it was it was it was precursors to what we've got now i mean if you go out looking on the internet for uh pagan statuary you're going to get hundreds of thousands of returns and back in nine in the 90s and 91 especially there wasn't thousands of returns. You were lucky if you had a selection of ten different pagan statue, statues at your local pagan shop. And if you really wanted to get esoteric, uh, you went down to the dollar store to see if you could reconvert some angel um, statues into your statuary, your deity representations. You know, and that was about it. Um, these days, there's lots and lots of people all over the world that are making absolutely gorgeous stuff. Um, I had a, a, f a friend that I've never met in the flesh, Sabrina the Ink Witch, 
who lives out on the East Coast in Boston area, drew me some gorgeous pictures of Hearn and Rhiannon and gave them to me. You know, she, um, she and I talked by email quite a number of times, and it was wonderful. And, you know, I'm still flabbergasted at it. It was... But finding uh, finding a drawing like that, you know, back on AOL and their archives that went on for years and years and years was... It's true. Oh, man. Having to wade through that mess of files was just something else. <clears throat> or the inevitable, like, people on those bulletin board chat systems who were like, hey, hey, I've got a file that, you know, meets what you're looking for. And then it's like porn, and you waited like 10 minutes to download the thing to find that out. Yeah. And then you actually get it, and it's, you know, so pixelated you can't use it. Or, you know, it's it's something that somebody, that a five-year-old with a crayon could have thrown together which probably took the artist that made it 16 hours to make using paint. <laughs> it's true. Oh, Lord. Those were the days. This is... Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. <laughs> Songs that made the hit parade. Guys <laughs> like us, we had it made. Those, Those were, were the days. days. Um, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, the Pagan Archives, because uh, there was the Writers of the Crystal Wind um, uh, Book of Shadows. You remember that? Seven files in excess of, um, I think, 8,000 pages of some of the most scattered stuff <coughs> ever. Had all of Mike Nichols' things in there, had every ritual that they could find stuffed into it. Uh, the index by itself was t was 15k text file and to get a 15k text file you really got to put a lot of stuff in there and that's true I mean, and the, the files didn't get laid out like they weren't interchangeable they were for txt files and you basically had to like sift through this unedited mess of text that someone had just basically punched out and it would run like over the boundaries of the pages and you'd have to like recopy that one half line that got stuck on the perforated or the perforated page border and shit like that it was mm -hmm. like oh it was awful and then there were the two files that were in there that was main six and main seven but they weren't text files they were dot bos files and you tried to open them and your computer went what the fuck is this it's so true. Had, so you had to go in and rename the extension in order to get it open. That's true. Oh, Lord. Anyway. Even the ass stuff. <laughs> Nostalgia. And, you know, even that. You better. kids have it easy. Even that was better than what uh, Gardner and Buckland had. Because they didn't have anything. I mean, they had the Golden Bough. They had, um, they may have had the White Goddess. They may have had Margaret the, Murray stuff. Margaret Murray Smith, you know, they, Leland spotty archaeology, you know, random ideas that, you know, people were, were making up, or the Rosicrucians were kind of just sort of blathering. Mm -hmm. um, Stuff from the secret societies, uh, leftovers from uh, the Gilderay um, and the, the Templars. 
And then oh. turn of the century, you had like Aleister Crowley's pile of stuff, and you know, <laughs> Jesus, pile of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but like, basically, I mean, there was so much you, you had to pick and choose to get. Yeah, um, and you had I, to be really careful about what you grabbed and put in there. And then you know, with like Aleister Crowley, you had times when. He would come up and he would say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you can't use this. No, no, you got to pull that out. That's copyrighted stuff." Well, and I, I kind of think that in a way, that period of time probably would have been a lot better because you could pick and choose, and you know, there wasn't this idea that you had to have a consistent and pretty um, planned out mythology for your particular tradition, and you didn't have to, you know have all this kind of stuff. It was basically, you want to do a ritual to lucifuge, go for it. You know, if you want to have a sex rite dedicated to pan, go for it. You know, snort some coke and, you know, smoke some (laughs) opium and let's just get down to it. Um, So, you know, I mean, in a way that those early ideas were kind of interesting because there was that flexibility. But then, you know, you've got the modern tradition of chaos magic, which, you know, is along the same line Mm -hmm. where you can draw all sorts of inspiration from anywhere you feel like it. Because really, if you want to change your idea of what a deity looks like, you're welcome to. And, you know, the big disadvantage of all of this now is the glut of information in a lot of ways, because so back when it was just starting out, yes, you could pick and choose what you wanted to put in there. It was very streamlined. There was like one, maybe two sources for stuff. Now what you've got is you've got – if you go and type in uh, a Thame into Google, you're going to get 500,000 sites without even trying. And they're all going to have – uh, either the same basic information or they're all going to tell you opposing things and you're going to be left with, well, what actually is it? Is it a real thing? Is it not something? It, what, what do I do with it? Is it single-edged, double-edged? Is it a knife? Is it uh, a scram of sacks? Is it uh, five feet long? You know, what the hell? Does it have to have a black handle? Does it have to have a white handle? You know, things like that. So Yeah, absolutely. It can be very... Can, like convoluted and difficult to research basic stuff now. Um, actually, it's funny because one of my coworkers, who is kind of a, I want to call him a liberal Christian, um, he he was asking me one day about what one of our former coworkers believed, um, who you know who identified himself after one Wicca 101 class as a Wiccan or a Druid or a pagan, and you know. That one class was all the training he'd ever had. And I said, well, I would call him a wino myself, um, Wiccan in name only. Um, (laughs) But he's like, how about you email me a whole list of pages? And I was like, "Um, you could probably just Google some basic shit like that. And he goes, well, see, I want to sort of defer this search to you who have – veteran you're you're a veteran you have knowledge of things you have a good idea of what's a good site or a bad site and i was like you're looking for a definite a dictionary definition you're not looking to practice it so what you can find in 30 seconds of searching will save me a lot of time because i don't want to do hours of research to email you a list of things 
that took me forever to find. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately that seems to be a lot of what's going on. Um, there's a lot of people that are like that. There's a lot of baby pagans that are like that too. And it's something that after a little while I want to grab them by the throat, slam their head into the wall and go, do the research. I had to do the research. I had to make my decisions. I had to find all of this once. You're not going to get to the same place I'm at unless you follow the same steps. Well, and that – I mean the funny thing is too, like he's 20 and I'm looking at him going, you've never known life before the internet. Fuck you. Like <laughs> I had to pour through stacks of books in libraries all over the friggin' city. Like don't try to ask me for a list of websites because I was like – I used books when I was growing up and, you know, learning about this stuff. So, And you can never you, find the books in the libraries <laughs> because the the books would come into the libraries and somebody inevitably would steal them. It's true. So you and go actually, to the library card catalog and there's 16 copies of Buckland's Big Blue Book and you're like, yes, I can finally get one. And you go to the shelves and there's none. It's true. <laughs> or, you know, someone is – it's overdue by like three years or you know whatever, and it's like really like why even bother? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember donating my copy, my first copy of Buckland's Big Blue, to my high school library because I was you know kind of bored with it. And so did the censorship it, get it, or did somebody steal it? Someone has to have stolen it because the librarian was totally fine with it. She was a Unitarian and she was quite supportive of my explorations into Wicca and that sort of thing. Um, I also happened to be like a library um, sciences student at the time. So I did have a little bit more say than your average student as to what the library was going to have. Mm-hmm. Um but every time I donated a book on Wicca or paganism, someone fucking stole it. And I was like, really? Like, what the fuck is the point of that? And you, you never I, know You never know if it's the holy rolling Christian who is stealing it that says that this is demon worship and should be segregated from all of society forever because it will corrupt people. Or a baby pagan that didn't want to come out of the broom closet and stole it to read uh, under their covers with a flashlight at night. That's exactly it. Like, because actually, I was I was basically butting heads with the fundy Christian teacher who was my photography and art teacher. He and I did not get along. Um, <laughs> and he was the one that ran the Christian fellowship group at our school. Oh Lord, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it was like I wore a pentacle around and he would give me this, you know, like weird look of like, what the fuck are you wearing? And I would, you know, kind of ignore him because I didn't want to talk to him about it. But there was one day I kind of forgot my, uh, my, I want to say my supplies in art class. And it was lunch and the Christian fellowship group had met that I wasn't really paying attention to their schedule for. So I was walking in with a pentacle into a group of like 20 kids who were all Christians. And I was like, Oh, this is slightly awkward. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, 
so I don't know if it was one of them who was like, oh, my God, how can there be this evil, terrible stuff among us? <laughs> I when... think I had it a little bit easier. I was at during the time of high school, I was a holy rolling Mormon. So I think I managed to avoid most of it because I was already a fundy Christian at that point. <laughs> oh, so you were you were just hiding behind the the veil of the Christian identity that pretty others much. were already wearing. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been being taught uh, most of these concepts by my grandmother, oddly enough, new age Christian that she was, uh, since I was like six. So, you know, <coughs> seeing auras and talking about Atlantis and UFOs and uh, the pyramids lining up as, uh, you know, some sort of prayer generator and, you know, things in the 13th planet that was going to come back after 5,000 years in the age of Aquarius and all that. All that was an old hat to me, you know. No me, doubt. Get me crystals, you know. I could tell you about the properties of malachite and azurite and, you know, why turquoise was a good thing if you worked up high and, you know, things like that. And then add in, you know, God and Jesus and all of his archangels and everything like that. Well... <laughs> I mean, see, that doesn't surprise me, though, because, I mean, Alice Bailey's stuff was, like, kind of like this New Agey Christian stuff where mm -hmm. it was kind of the mainstream New Age Christian or the mainstream Christian concepts of God and Jesus. Right. But it threw in all this stuff that, you know, Blavatsky and the others would have been talking about as well. So it was like a whole mishmash of ideas. Um and actually, Bailey was a theosophist, wasn't she? I believe so. Uh, I do know that, uh, according to the legend, uh, she co-authored these books uh, through the ethers with uh, a gentleman in India, uh, a fakir. Um, <laughs> which... wasn't, wasn't there a name for him? Yeah, I don't remember his name. I would have to look it up, but he's uh, listed as the co-author on just about all those books. And huh. it's, you know, it's like, okay. Because um, wasn't it Blavatsky that worked with the so-called Tibetan? Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to look it up. I mean, I didn't, I didn't the Alice much. Bailey's books are fascinating if you want to, you know, spend the time reading all of them because there's they a really shit ton are. of them. They're, um, they're a good look into the the thinking of New Age philosophy. Um, I mean, if you... If you take Blavatsky, uh, add in uh, Rosicrucianism, add in the Fraternal Orders, uh, add in uh, a healthy dose of the Solomon books, uh, and then add in Tibetan Buddhism um, along with astronomy and astrology and... Um, a lot of really weird stuff like handwriting analysis. That then you basically math. have, yeah, you basically have theosophy, um, and new age Alice Bailey. You know what has become the new age stuff, um, neo gnosticism. Mm -hmm. You've got all of that sort of basically present in books like by authors like Alice Bailey. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's not bad. It's just such of a mishmash that you can't really start separating it out. Mary.
That's okay. the one, yes. Joel Cool. Yeah. But yes. yeah, he's like I said, he's listed as a co author. And that's you know New Age philosophy has changed a lot over the years. It's streamlined it's itself, it's gotten rid of a bunch of stuff that was cluttering it up, like aliens and Bigfoot. Um I think if you want to get a, a sort of more streamlined idea of what um, the Theosophists and Rosicrucians were presenting back in the turn of the century, um, you can take a look at um, oh, what the hell is his name? Dronvelo Melchizedek's books, um, the Teachings of the Flower of Life, or whatever the hell they're called, um, because they they sort of condense all of the Alice Bailey type material into a couple of little thin volumes um, with pictures and stuff. Um, most of most of New Age philosophy I noticed has uh, broken up into Native American spirituality, where it was to start with, uh, into um, transcendental meditation and Tibetan Buddhism and yoga, all of that little group. And then um, self-help things like you see at uh, the um, seminars to, you know, get yourself up off your butt and do something with your life. It's true. Those are pretty much the groups that they've broken into. I mean, there's still still some that, you know, get really into it, um, and there's – they're not cults, but they would be considered cults. They're small. They're isolated. Um, oh, what was the name of that lady that Grandma loved? Uh, Claire Prophet. <laughs> she apparently was a fraud of some sort, but I don't quite understand how. Yeah. She was taking all sorts of money and supposedly using it to uh, build a utopia for the believers and then didn't. Um, but I can car tends to be one of the real offshoots of um, New Age philosophy. Uh, Scientology also. Um, the, well, the Mormons are, are Gnostic, like Freemasonic, occultic right. types too. Um, the Rosicrucians are still around. Mm-hmm. They offer a mail-order course if you want to spend $40 a month to get their little newsletters and lessons and stuff. Which I started um, looking at at one point. Just I did too. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's different groups that offer various ways of learning um, at various levels of expense. Um, but and all of this relates back to tarot because <laughs> it's because a tool. Everything does. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah, but it's 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 all a, it's, let the buyer beware. Caveat emptor, um, because. People are going to try to sell you the sun, moon, and stars, you know, for just the low price of twenty nine ninety five, and you get what you pay for. If you're, I'll tell you something. I the the most progress I made was when I didn't spend a nickel, but I spent myself. And what <laughs> I mean by that is I didn't take the cash that I made to buy things. But I spent time out of my life. I spent skull sweat. I spent um, thinking and talking about and 
deep discussions. I mean, I fell in love with Mary's mind before I ever fell in love with her body. We, you know, six, she's 16 years older than I am. She looks like a grandma. And here I am. She is a grandma. And I'm this geeky little kid who uh, likes role-playing and happens to enjoy metaphysics. We spent probably a total of 40 hours over the course of a week talking, just talking, about everything, about metaphysics, about tarot. She taught me how to do tarot, um, about life philosophy and revelations that I'd come to. And, you know, this was, the, this was one of the first people I'd ever had a chance to talk to this st stuff about in this depth. There were days that she didn't sleep. She was on a four-hour. She was on a four-day schedule at her work, which was ten hours a day, uh, ten hours on, uh, fourteen hours off, ten hours on, fourteen hours off. She did that for three days straight, then was off a day, and then she had another ten-hour day, okay, and then off two days. There are any number of nights where she would leave work. She would drive over to her daughter's house where I was staying at. And we would go off in her car to this little lake area nearby and just sit in the car and talk all night. And then she would go straight to work from there. No shower, no change of clothes. Um, straight to work, work that 10-hour day, and come back and do the exact same thing the next night. And it was... That was it. That was that was when I knew I was gone on her. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the that's the type of myself that I'm talking about. Is that type of skull sweat, that type of dedication, just to thinking about it. And Brian, do you have anything else to say? Um, can't think of anything that's pressing. Can't think uh, of anything. I want to apologize to everybody because throughout this, you probably heard this whimpering in the background. Uh, that's the dog, Lily. Uh, we recently had a death in the family. Uh, her partner, uh, Jack, passed away about a week ago, and she's very lonely and very attention needy. Uh, unfortunately, what that translates to is that she has to be outdoors quite a lot uh, to see her boyfriend, and uh, I'm not taking her out. So this two hours is her begging me the entire time to take her out while I'm on the recording with you guys. So, <laughs> And she had just gone out before we started. She went out during, and I'm about to take her out after. But that's what all the whimpering was about, so I have to apologize. But anyway. I don't think it was a big worry. Mm. Anyway. Um, yes. So, we don't know what's coming uh, next show. Uh, there's some herbalism show somewhere down the line. We're going to try to get Paul, what's his, what's his last name? Paul Byrell. Byrell, uh, to join us for a two-hour show. We are definitely getting Ellen Everett Hopman sometime in October um, to go through her new book and have a show with her. And, of course, we're trying to get Lupa and whatever. Now, I mention this because we're running out of show ideas. Um, we it's have, true. We have a whole bunch. We had a whole bunch, a list that was as long as my forearm, I promise, 
that was up on the website of shows that we wanted to do that we thought were interesting that we could talk for two hours on, and we're down to like three. It's <laughs> true. We uh, basically talk about things in the midst of doing other show topics, so we ended up striking off a lot of those things as we were talking about other topics. Um, and then we had to think back to our Tarot Talk um, riffs where we went off and talked about all kinds of things. Did we on talk top. about tools when we were doing that? Yeah, I think we did. We must have done it at least, you know, for a little while at the end of one of those shows. Um, and it related to tarot because of the fact that the tarot four suits cool. of tarot, you know, the four suits of tarot were the four main rituals, tools of ceremonial magic and, and mm-hmm. so on. So... We have and to have discussed it. Tarot itself is another point. tool for divination and you know use in magic and stuff. It's true. So, no. <laughs> so yeah, I mean there was all kinds of crossover with that. So and we had no idea that we were going to end up doing magical musings. So it was uh, it wasn't even a flicker in the eye. Um, but yeah, so uh, please, if you have ideas or you have thoughts or you have uh, something that you would like us to cover more in depth. Uh, please mention it. Let us know. Um, Joy well, at MagicalMusings.net and Brian at MagicalMusings.net. Um, and we'll you know, definitely take a look at it and try to work it through. It occurs uh, to me, why don't we do a show where we discuss all those like crossover um, metaphysical um, Gnostic type programs um, – that are available nowadays in case someone might want to be exploring that as opposed to a tradition specifically pagan in orientation like Wicca or, or Druidry or whatever. Um, what if we were to discuss like or do a show about Rosicrucianism and Theosophy and, you know, whatever the hell else? Um, That'd be great, but I know absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> well, I mean – my knowledge of all of them has just kind of come in bits and pieces because of the fact that I was researching all these different things that, mm-hmm. you know, happened to mention them. Um, and I don't know if you're feeling ambitious, I mean, you could always reread Manly Hall's, um, secret teachings of all the ages or whatever. Um, and that would give you a certain introduction or re- refresher to all those ideas. Actually, I could just reread the Key of Solomon, greater and lesser, along with the Goteas and the and all of that. Get <laughs> the same thing. That's true. <laughs> oh, you know what'd be really cool? I I I'm not even sure he's alive anymore. But getting Carol Poke Runyon onto the show at some point. That name sounds familiar, and I don't know why. Um, he wrote a bunch of stuff about. Solomon, Solomonic magic, um, the Goetias, and and so on. Um, he apparently was the one who, at least he takes credit for it, who figured out what the fuck that um, black mirror in the triangle was meant to do. Um, because in Goetic magic, um, there's like the ceremonial circle, which is a very complicated matter. And then there's Outside of that, there's a circle with a tripod, like a triangular base or frame or whatever, and a black mirror that 
is used in ceremony, but most books prior to his didn't quite understand it. And he, he kind of stumbled upon the answer in a totally roundabout way. Um, but he, he, at least provided he's still alive, he runs a temple that teaches Solomonic uh, or ceremonial magic in a slightly pagan context. The goddess of all research says that he is still alive. He's on YouTube. Really? I can't believe that because he was like and on Facebook. 60. He was 60 20 years ago when he did his like videos. He was born in 1935. He was born in 35. So, I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it. So, listeners, let us know. I mean, yes. because you know, now we're getting our ideas from you, and we have been taking the ideas that come in and incorporating them into the shows. And if it's a show like last week, where or last month, where the majority of the show is something, we will say, hey, this listener wrote in. She had a good idea. And we're going with it this this time, so please. It's true. Yeah. Shout out to you and all your friends. <laughs> it's true, and we can ramble about almost any topic you can throw at us. So mm. test us. <laughs> anyway, all right. So that's enough for this episode. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed yourself. Uh, go back and re-listen to the uh, halfway point. Uh, where we beg you for contact and ideas and money and money. healing and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and let us know. I mean, we're always open to hearing from you guys, even if it's just, hey, you suck, or I think your um, show is the greatest thing since sliced white bread. I mean, I love getting those. I get some of those um, emails. One lady said it was the high point of her month, and that just made me smile for three days straight. I was in the best mood ever. I was like, hey, Brian, look at this. We're the best thing in her, in her month. And then the, the day after that, she was just like, oh, bloody hell, everything sucks. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. Just just yesterday you were on, you know, walking on air. What the hell? <laughs> so anyway. So, yeah, anyway, we look forward to hearing from you guys. Um and if hey here's the thing if y'all want to write in with questions uh we'll do a q and we get enough of them we'll do a q a show uh, true. i'll That's tell a good you thought. One, i'll tell you right now i get an average of one email per episode um so if that means that uh one person writing in represents a thousand people listening hey we got a thousand listeners surely there's people out there with a thousand questions that can you can write in and we'll do a Q and A show, two hours of everything. Yes, any and every, and it, it won't just be the ramblings at the end of tarot talk. It'll be legitimate rambling because you asked. Yes, and we'll love it every minute. It's true. <laughs> all right, so we'll talk to y'all later. Uh, tune into next month's show. Have a good time. Bye, bye, folks. <laughs>